Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 20th, we're studying Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 38. St. Luke records a very brief yet very significant account in our Lord's ministry, his baptism in the Jordan River by John. And then the evangelist traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, the son of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Andrew Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in New Haven, Missouri. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Preuss, let's talk a little bit of context. What do we need to know about what Luke's recorded so far in preparation to look at the text we've got this morning? Well, Luke has kind of set up the the, the historic theme um, of Jesus's ministry. And so he has talked about, you know, who is ruling at this time. You got Pontius Pilate ruling Judea, and you have the 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 descendants of Herod the Great who are ruling the various parts uh, of his kingdom around around the uh, the regions of of uh, what was formerly known as Israel. And and then you have John the Baptist that sets the stage for John the Baptist preaching this repentance for the freedoms of sins and baptizing people. And he's calling everyone to repentance. And he's even giving very specific, specific uh, instructions uh, for everyone in their various stations and lives. And, uh, you know, saying, you know, don't overcharge people, don't be cruel, you know, love, basically love your neighbors yourself. And then uh, it's, it's right around this time that Jesus shows up and what's what's interesting just to point out in the verses right before this is you have you you have uh, John t- telling them that they are that they shouldn't boast in being and calling themselves Abraham's offspring because God can raise children of Abraham from these stones and I find it interesting then that you know Jesus shows up as the stone whom the builders have rejected and you can see right before this, Luke also recording uh, that uh, that John was uh, was locked up in prison. So you have this kind of he's Luke is setting the stage for for the uh, uh, for basically the fulfillment of of Psalm two. You know why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? And and so you you see that happening with with the Herodians, uh, specifically uh, Herod uh, Antipas, uh, locking John up, and then you're going to see this emphasis then in in Jesus revealing himself as or being revealed as the Son of God. Uh, so so this is this is what's revealed in his baptism, and then the genealogy kind of hammers hammers in this point as well. In the in terms of the context, I think with you know John and his ministry being the precursor to this, 
all along in the Gospel of Luke so far, we've seen John as the forerunner of the Christ. And that was very true in his, you know, in the infancy narratives where you you get sort of this back and forth between this is what's happening with John and, and the pregnancy of Elizabeth. This is what's happening with Jesus and the pregnancy of Mary. And you get kind of this back and forth such that what you saw in the previous text in Luke 3 and everything that's happened to John you know that Jesus is going to go through something very similar, and he's going to preach something very similar. And so you, you, know, you have both of those things, I think, being set up that, okay, here's what's John, what John has said and done, and now we know that this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to follow in those same steps and go even farther, of course. And so, you know, that, that note there at the end that John's been locked up in prison— you know what's going to be coming for Jesus is going to involve some sort of suffering as well, and we're going to see how that plays out. The other thing I do think is is helpful in terms of the context, and, and this is just something as I'm looking through Luke right now, is the last time we saw Jesus do something in the Gospel of Luke was where he was a 12-year-old boy in the temple. And, and actually, the only words in red so far in Luke have been those words that Jesus spoke— back in Luke chapter 2 as a 12-year-old boy, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house or about the things of my father, doing the things that my father wants Mm -hmm. me to do? And I I find those words of Jesus helpful as we consider his baptism today, because as I'm sure we'll talk about it, it's going to seem a little strange. Well, if John's been preaching repentance and he's been baptizing sinners, what's Jesus doing here in the river? I think those words of Jesus that we've already heard when we bring them to bear, we know that Okay, maybe maybe it seems strange, but we know he's going to be about his father's business, whatever he's doing, and that includes his baptism here in the Jordan. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there's that there's that emphasis then of Jesus again being the the son of God. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. So I, I suppose we just go ahead. Well, let's let's just jump right in, I think, to the yeah, to the baptism of our Lord. So, <laughs> it's pretty short in Luke's gospel. It, it, so, we've got Luke 3 verses 21 and 22 records the baptism of our Lord. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased." That's Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. That's his account of the baptism of Jesus. So uh, one, I mean, there's plenty of things we can talk about here, Pastor Preuss. One of the things that maybe is striking is that Luke is, is pretty brief here. He's the one who's done his research. You know, he's, he's done, talked to the eyewitnesses, and yet he's pretty brief, especially when you compare him to Matthew. Just, I don't know, help us to get started. There's plenty of things we can talk about. Yeah, so Matthew is obviously the most... Uh, extensive in this account of Jesus's baptism, um, and uh, and what you find here in Luke, uh, a key difference <clears throat> where Luke is uh, Luke and Mark both say they have the Father saying, "You are my Son, in whom I am well pleased," right? And uh, but 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 Matthew says, "This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased." So Matthew kind of gives the indication that. God is declaring this for the sake of John and anyone else who who might hear it from heaven. Um, whereas Luke and and of course Mark with him is recording God addressing this to the Son, and this may seem like kind of a contradiction, but obviously this demonstrates this actually demonstrates something very profound about the Trinity. God works 
when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about two types of works. We talk about his outward, his, well, first his inward works, and then we talk about his outward works. And his outward works reveal his inward works, but we can't understand his outward works apart from some kind of insight into his inward works. So his inward works are that the Father has begotten the Son from eternity, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is what has been true in God from eternity. His outward works can really be summarized in three basic works, that he created the universe, he redeemed us, and he makes us holy, he sanctifies us. And while each of these three works are sometimes, they're, they're often attributed to one, uh, each of them to one of the uh, persons of the Godhead, like the Father with creation, the Son with redemption, the Holy Spirit with sanctification, uh, God is not divided in either of these three works. So, you know, God created the world through his Son, by his Holy Spirit, right? He, he, he redeemed the world by sending his Son into the flesh and, and leading him all along by the Holy Spirit, raising him from the dead by his own Spirit. And, and, and of course, the Spirit comes by the authority of the Father and the Son, declaring Christ, right? So, so God is always united uh, in his outward works. And these outward works show who he is and who he has been from eternity. So the fact that Matthew says, this is my beloved Son, uh, and, and, and Luke says, you are my beloved Son, shows that when God reveals to us who he is. He's revealing the relationship that he has shared with his son. So whether he's speaking personally to Jesus or uh, he's saying that, you know, declaring it kind of publicly to us, they're really one in the same thing. Right. So so the so and this is really something to ponder that what God declares to us, what he makes known to us is that which has been true in him from eternity so this is the love that the father has had for the son from eternity and what 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 also is significant here i mentioned how this is kind of a a fulfillment it's very much a fulfillment um and a and a, and a structuring kind of following the basic structure of psalm 2 why did the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his christ saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And then, of course, you know, he that sits in the heavens laughs. And then it goes on and it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give thee the nations for thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. So so this, this personal kind of um, second person uh, talk, right, where he's saying, you are my beloved son is hearkening back to the words from Psalm 2, which this is the decree that, that Jesus speaks of in Psalm 2, this decree that the Son speaks of, is the eternal decree, the eternal day, something that has existed in God from eternity, where the Father has always been saying this to the Son. And so now, finally, at the baptism of Jesus, we see this revealed to us. So again, whether whether we take it, Matthew and Luke are really just describing it from two different perspectives. One is from the perspective of Jesus, which has been true from eternity, which is now being made known to us. And the other is from the perspective of the witnesses who, who, who see, hey, here is God showing us who his son is. Um, so, so even though they, you know, Matthew records a lot more, um, you know, 
Matthew is recording more, I think, because he's showing the significance uh, of the whole work of Jesus for us, where Luke is really focusing in on who Jesus is, that he is the son of God, the eternal son of God, who has always heard the decree from the father, you are my beloved son, my only begotten son. Um, and, and, and that also shows then for God to be, for the father to beget the son, Another way of saying that is that the father loves the son and this, this is an eternal love. You know, God is love, right? This is what binds God together. And so we're seeing in this, in this, in this great revelation here, uh, God revealing his love. And this is the love. So the, so to think about that, the love by which Jesus was baptized, the love by which Jesus died for our sins, the love by which he was raised from the dead, the love by which he proclaims to us the gospel. This is the very love that has existed in God and the very love that, that God is, you know, from eternity. And so that's, uh, you know, you could go on and on and on and talk about that, but, uh, but that is really a marvelous thing to think about. Um, but there's other things to, 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 to mention that you, you can still bring out in Luke's account here, which, uh, which, which Matthew kind of elaborates on more. And one of them is that like, you know, Matthew records how, when Jesus comes to be baptized, John reacts in a very befuddled way. You know, he's like, well, why, why are you coming to me? Um, but you can see here in Luke, what if you go backwards to, to what John was preaching, what, who, who is meant to be baptized? What kind of people are supposed to be baptized? Mm. Well, sinners, right? So it's kind of a, a remarkable, it's a really a remarkable thing that, the sinless son of God shows up to, to undergo that, which is for sinners. Well, and that's, I, that's why I really appreciate you bringing out Psalm two here, because when you read through Psalm two, that, I mean, it's a, there's a very a royal nature to it. You know, that, that God mm. says, you know, he's, he's laughing at the other, at these rulers who are trying to set themselves against him and against the Christ. And his response is to set his King on his Holy Hill and, and yeah. so when you, but then, then you, you juxtapose, okay, God's going to set his king on his holy hill. He's going to give him the, the nations as his heritage. And then where do you see it fulfilled in, in Luke? It's when Jesus is going and, and to use Luke's language, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized. So where, where are we seeing this love that the fathers had for the son in all, for all eternity? Where are we seeing that revealed such that he's setting his, his son as king it's in Jesus going into the water with a bunch of sinners. I mean, it is, yeah. it's a very striking picture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, this is the, as, as John says, what kind of love the father has for us that we should be called children of God. You know, it's, it's really a, a, a remarkable wonder. It's a, it's an awe inspiring love that he would, that he who has had this life, Forever. I mean, really, when you think of eternal life, um, you, when you think of eternal life, you, it's, it's not just being alive forever or, you know, being in kind of a state of existence uh, for, for, for all eternity. It's much more lively, <laughs> so to say, you know, for lack of a better term, um, which I don't think there is a better term. It's much more lively than that, you know. Um, the Father has been in an eternal loving conversation so to speak with his son you know 
this is the decree that the father has it's an eternal decree and now here in the midst of sinners he declares this decree and he says to his son who is numbered among the transgressors in the water uh, uh, that is meant for sinners god says you are my beloved son and he does not revoke it right it's not it's not taken away his his steadfast love shall not depart from him um and, and it's just it's just an amazing thing so you think of other psalms like psalm 22 where he says you know my god my god why have you forsaken me as as he as that's fulfilled on the cross where he really is forsaken by the father and yet his steadfast love does not depart from him as nathan prophesies in second samuel 7 and it's just really a, a wonderful thing that he comes to share this with us one of the other things that we i think we have to talk about is the the matter of the holy spirit descending on Jesus in mm. bodily form, because especially, well, just thinking through Luke contextually, we've seen the Holy Spirit active in, in several places, you know, and I, I'll probably miss one when I start listing them, but, you know, I mean, you've got the Holy Spirit active at the visitation where Elizabeth is is exclaiming with joy, and Zach, or John is jumping with joy in, in the womb, and you've got Zachariah, the Holy Spirit's active with him in the Benedictus, and same with Simeon mm -hmm. in the temple. So over and over again, we've seen the Holy Spirit active among the people of God, but now, in the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form. And if if we pay attention as we go into Luke chapter 4, the Spirit is going to begin you know, directing Jesus and leading Jesus in, in very specific ways, very important ways. And it's going to be even, say, maybe programmatic in the way that Jesus preaches in the synagogue at Nazareth and the text he chooses from Isaiah 61. So talk about, talk about that in the baptism of Jesus, because this is where we see you know, the Spirit descend on Jesus in bodily form. Why is that such a key event in, in this ministry of Jesus? Yeah, yeah. This is, um, you know, I was recently reading uh, Martin Chemnitz on, uh, in his Two Natures in Christ on, on this, where, you know, he, he points out that in Isaiah 61, for example, where it says, the Spirit of, of the Lord God is upon me, um, that, you know, this is the Son speaking, that this is not, this is describing specifically the anointing of his human nature, uh, the public anointing of his human nature, uh, which is part of his office uh, as uh, as our redeemer. And it's not it's not talking about, although it certainly implies this, um, but it's not talking specifically about uh, the eternal, you know, procession of the Spirit from the Son. So the Holy Spirit has the Son has always had the Holy Spirit from eternity. Um, he he has always uh, proceeded from the Father and the Son. Um, but now here in in time in in the fullness of time when he appears at his baptism, which is the beginning of his ministry, right? Um, he as as it says there at at the end of after Luke records this, he says, you know, Jesus was thirty years old when he began his ministry. This marks the beginning of his public ministry where God has anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And so just as the Holy Spirit uh, was always with him <clears throat> from the beginning and was working all things out, speaking by the prophets and preparing the way through the prophecies, the prophetic word. So now the Holy Spirit has come upon him in the flesh to not only reveal him as the eternal son of God, but also then to lead him uh, in his mission 
to uh, to to which 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 ends with him anointing us, right? Because that's the whole point here is that he's baptized so that in our baptism we are anointed with the Holy Spirit, and that and that we are given everything that Jesus accomplished from his baptism to his death and resurrection, as John says in his epistle, you know, from the water to the blood, right? This is this is a and and Luke also. What's interesting, Luke records in chapter 12, where Jesus refers to his death as his baptism that he is about to undergo. So he doesn't separate his baptism from his death. And then in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, I believe, it says that he, he offered himself as a sacrifice by the eternal spirit. And so it's by the, and the spirit is, the Holy Spirit is the one who immediately after his baptism leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Holy Spirit is, uh, is upon him, not just, uh, not, not just in, in the eternal sense that he has always proceeded from him, but now he's upon him in this public work of humiliation where he will, as the true priest, who just as the priests were anointed with oil, so Jesus as the true high priest is anointed in this public office to render the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice, uh, which is which is the fulfillment of the, them all, which is his own body. Hmm. What you made, you began to make a connection there, Pastor Preuss. I'd like to hear you talk more about it. The connection between what Jesus does in his baptism and then what happens to us in our baptism. What what is the connection between those two things? Well, like as I as I said before, Jesus numbers himself among the transgressors when he's baptized, because this is a baptism that is for sinners, as we see very clearly from uh, what Luke wrote before this and what Matthew rec records as well, that John was baptizing sinners. And so Jesus puts himself in the place of sinners. And he and then what he does is he 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 walks toward Jerusalem and you see this very uh very much come out in Luke's gospel, especially where Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem and he's he's on this long march toward his death. And so so what that means then is that in our baptism, we are baptized into everything that Jesus did, his death and his resurrection. This is why Paul can say in Romans 6 and in Colossians 2 that we're actually buried with Jesus in baptism, that everyone who's baptized into Christ is baptized into his death, so that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, um, and that is by the Holy Spirit, right? You know, he, as, as, as Paul says two chapters later in Romans 8, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, then he will raise us from the dead as well. So this is, so, so what we have in our baptism is everything that Jesus did publicly everything that Jesus accomplished in his entire life, but especially in his public ministry. Um, and, and, and so, so the Holy spirit himself is actually delivering the very life, death and resurrection of Jesus to us in our baptism, which again is why Paul is able to say that we're baptized into his death and resurrection. This isn't just, this isn't just symbolic. This is the, you know, it certainly is a, a symbolic event, you know, and water certainly signifies the, the, the washing away of the old, but this is real. This is a very real giving of a good conscience toward God um, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because Jesus's baptism cannot be separated from his uh, from his death and resurrection. And this goes along with what I was saying before about how God is one, right? God cannot be divided. 
So just as surely as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot be divided from one another, although they are distinct relations, persons within the Godhead, so uh, can uh, so so the, the 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 death, resurrection, ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, you know, the preaching of the gospel, none of these things can be divided. So you know, we from our finite way of thinking might think, oh well, you know, Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did this. Now we here we are two thousand years later, and how do we kind of tap into all this? Like, well, no, this is the whole point of Jesus getting baptized and then sending his disciples to go baptize after he has completed all things. That is that the baptism by which we're baptized in is Jesus's baptism. It's the same baptism, and so this is a very in, in the in in. In a very real sense, we are joined to him and everything that he did. There's one more detail I want to make sure we we pick up, because I do think that it is unique to Luke. Luke records that when Jesus was baptized, he was also praying. It's there in, in verse 21. And I was wondering if, if as and I wish I had thought of this earlier when you were talking about Psalm 2, but when you think about Psalm 2 as, a, as that conversation between father and son, this detail that that Jesus is praying, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Then that's why Luke would tell us, you know, you are my beloved son, because he's he's doing this in the in the the conversation between father and son. But can you talk just a little bit? We've got about two minutes here before the break about the the significance of Jesus praying at his baptism and at other times in his ministry. Yeah, yeah, and Luke records other times where Jesus would depart by himself to a desolate place and pray. You know, for extended periods of time, we actually catch a glimpse into this, um, an extended glimpse into this in John's, uh, John's Gospel, John 17, the high, what we call the high priestly prayer, which the entire chapter is just Jesus talking to his Father. Um, and you have other examples in in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is thanking his Father for hiding these things from the wise and prudent and revealing them to babes. And so you see here that. Jesus is having a conversation with his father. And, and this is something I often tell people when I talk about prayer, is that prayer is a conversation with God. But the problem with the way that most people see prayer is that they see it as like this kind of one-sided conversation. Like we're talking to God and then we're just kind of waiting for him to like sort of give us a nice feeling or something like that. Um, but no, God does talk back. He talks through his word. And the more we listen to his word, the more our prayers actually are shaped in 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 our responding back to him and what jesus shows us here is that his prayer to the father and his father's response to him is that eternal like i said that eternal conversation that has always taken place and so then in our baptism which is always joined with prayer this is why we always pray when we baptize and we continue to learn to pray with the word of god we don't separate those two the word of god and prayer go together um and and so we god through this brings us in on his eternal conversation. And that is, that's, that's eternal life to know God, the only, to know the father, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, as he says in John 17. Right. Part of, part of his own prayer to his father there in John 17. And we'll pick up more of the text here in Luke chapter three, Jesus baptism, moving into his genealogy as well. On the other side of the break, you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're talking Luke three with pastor Andrew Preuss. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, January 20th. We're studying Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 38 with Pastor Andrew Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in New Haven, Missouri. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' baptism recorded in verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3. And then Luke moves us into the genealogy of Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and read that, the rest of the text, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So this is Luke 3 beginning now at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Mat, the son of Matthias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mathata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Roy, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That is the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 3, verses 23 through 38, the genealogy of Jesus as it is recorded by St. Luke. So, Pastor Preuss, before we look at the particulars of Luke's genealogy, and obviously we can't look at every single name. We don't know precisely a lot about some of these names, but let's let's talk a little bit about some of the differences that exist between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy. Of the four evangelists, those are the two that give us a genealogy of Jesus. What are some of the differences that exist between the two, and what do we make of those? So, First, um, just a, a quick similarity is that they both go through Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. But the differences are, first of all, that uh, they seem to Luke seems to take a different lineage um, in Joseph's line because you have a lot of different names until you get to basically David. And then there's like Zerubbabel is one of the one of the few like common ones uh, that the common ancestors 
uh, in between Joseph and David um, of, of the two genealogies. Um, but then also a significant detail difference is that uh, Matthew starts with Abraham and goes to Jesus through Joseph. And so he goes forward. And so he's saying, you know, he, he begat, he begat, he begat. And Luke goes backwards from Joseph and he goes all the way back to Adam. And he, and he keeps repeating son of, son of, son of. So you can see the, the emphasis there with, with uh, theologically, or the specific point that's being made by Matthew is that he's, he's tracing the lineage from, from Abraham, you know, bringing to mind the promise that God gave to Abraham that through his seed or through his descendant, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Um, while Luke is sticking with this theme of Psalm 2, of Jesus being the son of God. So he's going backwards in order to show that Jesus is both son of man, um, which you have, you know, like Psalm 8, for example, but also the son of God. So so those would be kind of your main differences. What about, I mean, in terms of, you know, this, the the differences in names. You you said they're both going through Joseph, and Joseph is mentioned in both, and yet they do take pretty different directions in some points. How how do we how do we account for that? What are some of the possible explanations? Well, from what I from what I can tell, um, there's it really comes down to a couple different possibilities. Uh, one is that Luke is describing just a different lineage of Joseph. Uh, through the line of Joseph, which could, and there are several different theories on how exactly he does that. Uh, you know, one might be is uh, who the, who's the, is 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 Heli, maybe the uh, you know a, a maybe the adopted son or something. You know, I, there's there's like some kind of shift. Maybe there was a there was a an uncle who who uh, took uh, took the wife of his brother or something. And, I, you know, I read, I read things like that, uh, which I can't really remember all the details, but it has something to do with, okay, there's just a different lineage of Joseph. The other one, uh, which is really interesting, and I've always kind of liked this, and I think this is the way Luther takes it, is that it's actually describing Mary's lineage and that it's, it's marked by the statement, uh, as was supposed right after it lists joseph as his father right so so jesus was the son as was supposed of joseph and that that you could take that as an indication that this is showing that the lineage here is not of joseph himself but rather joseph is just representing the lineage because he's the legal father of jesus and this this lineage is going back to uh through mary's lineage so that uh, so that heli would be you know his father-in-law or something like that mm. and mary's father which of course we, we can't know that uh for sure but that is an interesting thought and, and it also shows how you know one i remember learning about this that uh you know it's 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 just an interesting thing to think about how luke more than anyone else gives such detail about mary mm. 
Um, now you do have that with John. John gives the detail of the wedding at Cana, and of course Mary and John sitting at the foot of the cross. But you have Luke really giving the most details when it comes to the nativity and what Mary went through. So yes, you do have you do have uh, you know Matthew talking about the nativity as well, but but of course Luke gives much more. You know you got the Magnificat. You have Mary visiting her her uh, her cousin uh, Elizabeth, and so you would it would make sense then that if Luke is kind of compiling this from eyewitnesses, as he says that he did, that perhaps he compiled a lot of this stuff from Mary, and including perhaps the genealogy. So, okay, there, there's a couple of options that would explain why they are different genealogies, whether it's a, an, a line of Mary as opposed to the line of Joseph, you know, Luke being Mary, Matthew being Joseph, or whether Luke is giving us some sort of, or, or Matthew, one or the other is giving us perhaps a more of a legal genealogy, <laughs> one of a biological genealogy, something, some sort of difference like that that we just aren't sure. There, there are possibilities. In, in either case, Pastor Preuss, this is one of those spots where critics of the scriptures may say, ah, look, there's contradictions in your scriptures. They can't be trusted. Why Why should we, as Christians who trust that this is the Word of God, not be bothered by this? Why should we continue to trust in the reliability of the scriptures in the midst of, of the apparent difficulty that's presented here? Well, this goes, this goes with the overall quote-unquote problem of the of the four gospels, you know, you got the, the, the synoptic gospels that they're kind of looking through They're they're Matthew, Mark, and Luke are explaining things in a similar kind of chronology, whereas John is kind of doing his own thing and explaining it in, in a little bit different way. Um, and so there's this, this idea that, oh, well, if, if, if these things seem to not be in harmony, um, then, they they must be contradicting each other now first of all there are throughout the history of the church there have been plenty of harmonies of the of the gospels that have been written which which are very helpful and useful for us to 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 see that you know these things can be harmonized and they should be harmonized um that doesn't mean that we can always exactly say how they're harmonized uh, 100 but it at least demonstrates that they that they can be. And the, but the other thing too that that I've always been taught, and I've always taught to my to my parishioners when talking about the Gospels, is these differences. You compare it to if you have like four kids in your, let's say you're a teacher and you get and four kids in your class, you know, got into trouble, and uh, and they they're accused of something, and then you take them each kind of one by one. And they all tell the exact same story, right? In the exact same way. And you might, you might actually be a bit suspicious about that. Then think, you know, well, did you guys just kind of get together and say exactly what you're going to say? Right. But if you if you hear him each give it from his own perspective, and it's and it's it's a little different, but they're telling the same story. That actually strengthens their case a lot more. And so I say I think the same thing goes on here with the genealogies. This actually strengthens historical witness, because you think about it, there's more than one way to trace our Lord's geneal genealogy, just like there would be more than one way to trace any genealogy. I mean, how many, like you, you have, you have uh, two grand sets of grandparents. That means that you have four sets of great grandparents and it doubles every generation, right? 
so so the fact that there are more that, that there are more than one uh, uh, available genealogies confirms the diligence that the Jews had in keeping careful family records and we and we know this from reading the Old Testament we see this in in like the books of the history especially in, in Chronicles and in Ezra uh, he records I think it's in Ezra chapter 2 he you know he's recording the returning exiles of uh, among the Jews and the Levites who who you know they come back from exile to Jerusalem to rebuild and they're trying to get all their they're trying to get everything arranged for the priests specifically to be able to do their duties as priests but in order to do that they need to be able to confirm legally that they are Levites that they actually are descendant of the priests and there were there were some among the Levites who Zerubbabel, the governor at the time, who is one of the ancestors of, of Jesus listed here, uh, he he forbade them from from their from doing any services as priests for the time because they didn't have their records of genealogy. So they had to get those first before they could actually be confirmed. Uh, in 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 the duties of of the temple and other kind of priestly duties, so that shows how diligent these people were in keeping their family records and really keeping keeping their genealogies. And it would make perfect sense that Mary would have had access to her family genealogy, and that Joseph would have had access and 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 more than one uh, a record. Right. I mean, th th this was a huge thing for them, especially since they were all I mean, what this all came down to was the promise to Abraham that through their descent, through his descendant, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So they're very, very much interested uh, and diligent in keeping records. And you see this, of course, you know, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. So I mean, you see this in the genealogies from Adam all the way to Noah and all the way to Abraham, that this was a very important a very important task for them to record this stuff uh, because again, really it goes back to the promise given to Adam and Eve that through the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, um, the, 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 the head of the, of the devil would be crushed and his power would be destroyed and we would be saved. So, so there's, there's a, there's a great tradition, a handing down of of genealogies and so it makes perfect sense that you would have more than one mm -hmm. and that actually should give us more confidence that this is really legit historical record right that there that this wasn't just uh this wasn't just one genealogy so again it's just it, the, looking at it from different perspectives but telling the same account really helps strengthen that account mm -hmm. Very, very helpful answer, Pastor Preuss, that we can still trust and we should still trust all the more because of this fact. So let's talk about some of the specifics here in Luke's genealogy, again, recognizing that we can't cover every single detail here. But one thing that Luke gives us is that he tells us what Jesus' age is about. What's the significance of Luke telling us that Jesus is about 30 years old at this point? Yeah, so this this fits with Luke's overall way of writing his, his theme of the historical chronicles and genealogies, right? He's always talking about who's, who's the Caesar, right? At the, at the, who's the Roman emperor at the time? Who's the governor? Uh, who's the, who are the tetrarchs? Like who's in charge? Who, who is the high priest, 
right? So you have Annas, who was kind of high priest emeritus, who was deposed for some reason, and then his son-in-law Caiaphas is uh, is is kind of acting high priest, and so you have all these details on what's going on that 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 like who is who's ruling, right? Which mark what what the time is, and also at what what time like what what uh, what year in their rule. And you see this, this is Luke is following the his, the, the, the way of doing history that he learned from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. We see this all the time in First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, um, that he is, he's, you know, he's, he's chronicling. And so for, for him to point out that Jesus is 30 years old, roughly 30 years old when he begins his ministry, is again, uh, hammering through that point that this is historical this isn't just some once upon a time story but it is it is historical and it's for the purpose of giving certainty to his friend theophilus and to all of us who read this in the things in which we've been catechized and that, that so 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 jesus's age again is that historical marking but at the same time 30 is a significant age um because three, it's three times 10. So you can get into the, this, the theological significance there as well, where three is the mark of God. Uh, he's thrice holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, but then, and then times 10 is, you know, 10 is that, is one of those whole perfect numbers. So, so there's, there's that to consider as well. But I think that what, what, in the context here, you can see this pattern continuing in Luke of being a very careful documenter um, and historian. Uh, the other thing about the age of 30, I think, is that there are some significant figures in the scriptures who who do or start things at age 30. Having recently studied Ezekiel here on Sharper Iron, Ezekiel was 30 years old when he began his ministry, and mm, priests sure. began their work at age 30. I mean, so there, and apparently David assumed the throne at, at that age as well. So mm, 30, okay. 30 seems like a, a fitting age, even just from a you know, historical perspective, looking through the Old Testament. So uh, a fitting age for someone like Jesus to begin his yeah. his ministry. And oh. that goes along with what you were saying about how I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, you know, that, right. that David was 30. So, yeah, that's interesting. Tell, tell us a little, you mentioned the name Zerubbabel, which is just a fun name to say, by the way. Uh, you, you mentioned that name as one of the names that is in common between Matthew and Luke, particularly in that part of the genealogy that's closer to Jesus historically. What, tell us a little bit about Zerubbabel. Yeah, so Zer, Zer, so I'll, I'll you pronounce can say it a little it how bit you want. That's yeah. fine. Zer, Zerubbabel is usually how I say it. Um, and, you know, just off the cuff, and I might be totally off here, but I wonder, uh, ah, never mind, I'm not even going to try. I, what does Zerubbabel mean? Oh, Do you know? I don't remember. I'd, I'd have to. No. I'd have to look it up. Um, something. Send, send us an email to anyone who knows. Send us an email. Tell us what Zerubbabel means. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but at any rate, uh, Zerubbabel is the descendant of David, right? He's in that line. He's recorded both by Matthew and Luke, and he's a very significant character. And I I don't think it's a coincidence at all that that both of them, even though there's different divergence uh, of uh, you know different different kind of trails two different trails that you find in the genealogies um, that they both have Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel is the governor who is appointed by Cyrus, the Persian, uh, the Persian King, when they, when the people are sent back 
to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so you have you Zerubbabel is talked about in uh, in in the book of Ezra, and he he is the he is of the line of David, and so he's anointed as the king. And then you but you also have Joshua, who is the who is anointed as the high priest with, and so he and Zerubbabel, Joshua and Zerubbabel are both kind of, you know, holding down the fort uh, when they first enter into the, you know, the deserted. Jerusalem to kind of rebuild from the rubble and rebuild, especially the temple. And you have these great prophets, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, who are encouraging Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people to continue in their building of the temple. And so this is uh, this this was this was his great great work. What he's known for is 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 building that that great building project of the second temple. And and Haggai said that the the glory of this temple would be greater even than the temple that Solomon built, even though and we and we talked about this. I believe we talked about this when we were going through this this part in uh, in Ezekiel where he's he's kind of describing you know this this new temple that um, that the temple in that Solomon built was way bigger than the temple that ended up being built by Zerubbabel. Of course, it was added on and made to look really, really magnificent and beautiful by Herod. Um, but of course, Jesus said that it was going to be torn down, which it was in 70 AD by the Romans. But so so Zerubbabel then is that kind of marker of them returning from the captivity and building the temple. And so now Jesus, as you said, as you alluded to or pointed out earlier, that when Jesus was 12, you know, he said, I must be about my father's business. He was in the temple. He was in the very temple that Zerubbabel had overseen uh, the rebuilding of. And so here, so so the fact that Luke traces it back and and mentions Zerubbabel in his genealogy, uh, as as Matthew does as well, I think it's significant in 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 that respect that it sh it, it marks uh, this uh, this this important detail of what Jesus is coming to do. That he is. He first of all, he actually comes to that temple as the true, you know, glory of the Lord, which was lost when the Ark of the Covenant disappeared after the captivity in the Babylon. Um, but also, he is the true temple. He is the true tabernacle in his body. Um, so, hearkening back to Zerubbabel is, uh, you know, that that's a Zerubbabel is a guy who we should all know about. You know, he's a he's a very important figure in the scriptures that maybe we don't. You know, I didn't really know much about him until I was in seminary or even a pastor, you know, just studying this stuff and reading about it. And he's just a very significant character um, in the, especially in the later parts of the Old Testament. Pastor Percy, about four minutes on the morning. And I think the, the place to close will be the, the place that Luke leaves us in his genealogy. He does, as you said, trace the genealogy all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, I mean, what's what's the point with Luke going that far? How does that help bridge the gap between the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus? What's what's the good news for us that Jesus' genealogy goes all the way back to being the son of Adam, the son of God? Yeah, it's that Jesus is the son of man, um, and Adam is the Hebrew word for man, and Jesus is the son of God. Um, he's the son of man, uh, as he is described in, especially in, in, in Psalm 8, I believe it's Psalm 45, especially the, no, 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 Psalm 80, 
ah, which one is it? The, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Is that Psalm 80? Um, so, but it's one of those anyway. So, but, but, but in Psalm eight, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him, of the son of man that, you know, that you consider him and you've made him for a little while lower than the angels and you've exalted him with glory. And so here, Jesus is the son of man, both because he is man, he is, he's God in the flesh. Um, but also because he is now, he is the, he is the new man. He is the new Adam. He is the second Adam, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, that the first Adam was a man of, of, of the earth. Um, but the second man, Adam, is, is the man of the spirit, that he gives the Holy Spirit. And so he, and then, of course, it ends with him being the son of God. So, you know, son of man, son of God, yeah, that, that shows his two natures, that he's both God and man. But it also shows his office. You know, it's it's it, it, it's it's much more than just his two natures. It's it's his office. It's what he's actually going to accomplish. That he is actually bringing about a new creation. That he's bringing about um, his Holy Spirit. You know, to 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 pour it upon all flesh, to declare us righteous, to give us uh, to give us a new man within us, so that the old man continually is is buried and killed in baptism every day, so that a new man arises. Uh, with Christ every day to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And so it's, you know, all of what Jesus is doing here is for for us so that we may live new lives. And, and just if I can add one thing, too, I think, you know, the fact that he traces it back to Adam, it's for all people. You know, I mean, we've seen yeah. that, uh, you know, throughout Luke that I mean, just thinking what is what is Simeon saying in the Nuctimidus, that he is the the light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory yeah. to your people, Israel. In Luke 3, Luke extended that Isaiah 40 quotation all the way to all flesh shall see the salvation mm-hmm. of God. And so, I, yeah, I think it fits perfectly here that Luke takes it all the way back to Adam. What Jesus has come to do is for all humanity, all mankind. He's going to be the Savior. And so what a, what yeah, a, amen. What a, fitting, what a fitting way for Luke to, to take his genealogy here in Luke chapter 3. Pastor Andrew Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in New Haven, Missouri, helping us today with Luke 3. Verses 21 to 38. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks. It was fun. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 3 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.